This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 155. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I have with me Matthew Marister. Hey, Riley. Hey, everyone. Really happy to be here, and uh, thanks again for having me back. Hey, and we're glad to have you uh, as well. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You've been doing some great things there in uh, Ohio, uh, where you instruct and teach, and uh, always following you on social media, and, and you're doing good stuff, man. Thanks, thanks. I really appreciate yeah, it, man. So today, by the way, folks, it's Monday, September 11th. Uh, it is our usual news episode, but obviously everybody on your minds, you're re- you're probably remembering much like I am 16 years ago, the uh, you know fate, uh, well, fatal and tragic events that happened on this day uh, in 2001. And so our hearts, our thoughts, our prayers are with those that perished and were impacted by uh, those terrorist attacks on 9-11. And uh, yeah, so I hope that you know we don't forget what happened on that day and what we stand for as Americans. Um, what, what do you think, uh, Matthew? And, and I'm kind of curious, where were you on that fateful day? Um, actually, I was returning from a Westpac. I was in the Marine Corps. I was stationed on the USS Boxer. We were coming back from a West Westpac uh, six month deployment, and uh, we were just off the coast of Pendleton, ready to ready to offload the next morning. And, uh, I remember being, it was kind of weird. I remember being, um, in this little lounge area and, uh, hearing something on, uh, they had the, uh, AFS news playing, you know, on the TV and seeing something and everybody was kind of like in dis- disbelief, you know, almost like it was like some training drill or something. Cause you're kind of detached when you're out on deployment. Um, uh, and so it was almost like a training drill, like, is this real? Is this really going on? And it was just, it was crazy. Um, we didn't know if we were going to turn around and head back out to the Middle East or, um, what was going on. So it was, uh, it's kind of a surreal, surreal experience. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't have anything as cool as you to share, uh, cause I was a, a lowly, <laughs> uh, carpenter and, uh, but you know, my own experience is kind of unique. I, I think, like, I think very, I shouldn't say the word fondly, but it's 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 very memorable to me, and I do think back fondly because I enjoyed those days back, uh, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago when I was a carpenter, and I really enjoyed doing that work, even though it was hard, hard labor, uh, but uh, I was, when the first reports came in about the first plane uh, uh, flying into the North Tower, uh, and it was very vague, too, like, all, all, we didn't have smartphones, right? Uh, and so right. I, I'm listening to the radio as I'm driving to work, which was over the Teton Pass in between Idaho and, and Wyoming going into Jackson Hole, which is where I worked at the time on a, a construction project. And I'm, so I'm listening to the radio and the first report is literally like a plane just flew into, you know, one of the World Trade Center buildings and like, that's it. And you're thinking, oh, it's probably, you know, like a little Cessna plane and, you know, that's happened before. I think a plane crashed yeah. into the Empire State Building like many years ago or something, you know, like you're just kind of like, oh, that's, you know, it sucks. It's not cool, but, you know, you, you know, it's just one of those things that you sort of hear in passing in the news. And then a short time later, you know, 20 minutes, right? Like 16 mm-hmm. minutes or something between the two planes. Uh then, then the second report comes in and it's like, uh, 
oh crap. And then it was saying, you know, these were big planes. And I'm like, wow. Then we get to the job site. And I just remember we didn't get a lot done that day. I remember a number of times we would just spend half an hour and, and our foreman and superintendent, you know, they didn't, they, they were doing this with us too. We were just crowded around the radios, sitting on five gallon buckets and stuff, just listening to all the reports, you know, jaws dropping and, you know, it, wow. Uh, it's like it was yesterday, right? Yeah. And, and it's weird. I don't think, I, I don't think that, um, we were really ready or anybody really experienced something like that before. Now, if it happened again, um, I think that the, the country would be more, not more prepared, but you know, Oh, obviously more prepared as far as like response, but the people in general's reaction to it, I think between social media and everything, people would be more under more aware of what's going on. Um, but that was really the first time something that of that magnitude. I mean, obviously is a, what the largest terrorist attack, um, on, on American soil. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think just the magnitude of it was so, this isn't happening. Yeah. You know, this is not, this is not like what's supposed to happen in America. Right. So, so I so agree, you know, I mean, cause once again, not having smartphone technology and, and whatnot, uh, like we do now, you, you really are kind of removed from it. And it, it didn't seem real to me at all. And, and not being able to be right there at a TV all day long, it wasn't until I got home from work and I turn on the TV for the first time and I get those, I see those first images and mm-hmm. it was way, it was, it was way worse than I could have even imagined. You know, it was like, like you hear on the radio, you know, planes crashed into these buildings and then the buildings fell and you're just kind of like, that's bad. But then you see it for the first time exactly. and it was like, I, I got sick to my stomach seeing it for the first time. You know, it was just, it finally sunk in and it was, uh, it was crazy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird feeling. I mean, knowing that we had been gone out of the country for six months, we returned and that happened and it was just like, wow, we were so excited. You know, like when you're returning from a six month deployment, you're happy to get back to the CONUS, like, you know, things that you're familiar with food and all that stuff and get off the boat. And it was like, this is not happening. Like this is, and, but I'll tell you, honestly, um, the most, most of the Marines are, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure all of them, but, um, myself included, we're all like, let's turn the boat around. Let's get back out there. Let's go handle business. You know, it was, uh, it was really an immediate, like, this isn't going to be tolerated type mentality, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's crazy that it's been that long. I can't I can't believe it's been that long, but yeah, indeed. it's like it was yesterday, like you said. Yep. Well, like I said, you know, hearts, prayers, thoughts, whatever, you know, all that, uh, our, our minds and hearts. Uh, we remember those that lost their lives that day, uh, many thousands. Uh, we honor those that sacrifice their lives uh, doing their jobs, uh, FDNY, um, NYPD. And others, uh, Port Authority officers, and, and um, tragic day in our nation's history. But we rose up from it. I think we became better. Um, we've taken out a lot of bad dudes uh, that were the result or that caused that, and uh, uh, we've got probably some other bad dudes still to take out. But uh, anyway, it's a, a reminder, you know, uh, of who we are as Americans, and, and also let's hope that uh, we are prepared a little bit better now individually and as a nation 
if if another event happens somewhere, um, let us be, let us be ready. Let us respond, and also let's overcome that as well. Now, uh, real quick, today's episode is brought to you by. This is a new one. This is ICE Training, ICE. This is Rob Pincus's training company. We recently secured a special deal together with Rob Pincus from ICE Training and the Personal Defense Network. This is seriously a really great deal. Rob would like to give you a free copy of his best 100-round practice session DVD. To my knowledge, Rob Pincus has never given away one of his DVDs like this. All you have to do is pay the shipping. Have you ever wondered what to do in practice when all you have is one hour and two boxes of ammunition? This DVD will walk you through dozens of excellent drills and scenarios to keep you sharp and at the top of your game with limited range time and resources. So go pick it up. The best 100-round practice session DVD, free, just pay shipping. And you can get it at www.concealedcarry.com forward slash best 100. And that is B-E-S-T-1-0-0. So concealedcarry.com forward slash best 100. Go check it out. Free DVD. That's it's And it's a, it's a good one too. I've seen it. Uh, and it's a really great uh, training DVD. So, And uh, today's episode is also brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense and Sports Afield. But before we get into our news stories for today, we do have a training tip uh, courtesy of Matthew. So tell us what's on your mind for today's training tip. <laughs> Well, you kind of put me on, on the spot and said, hey, come up with training tips. So I was like racking my brain, which, you know, there's not much stuff in there, but um, something filtered out. And I was like, hey, let's talk about shooting while on the move versus shooting, then moving and then shooting. So basically, you know, there's two different um, kind of ideas or doctrines, whatever you want to think. And people are really divided or stick to one versus the other. Um, on should you shoot and then run to a you know cover or next spot and shoot, um, or should you shoot and then as you're moving continue to engage target? So, um, kind of what I thought would would be a good good uh, idea to talk about. Absolutely, and you're right in that there are different schools of thought on this. Where you got you got guys on one side of the fence that say, yeah, you need to know how to shoot on on the move. Uh, then you have other guys that say that's dumb. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you, you don't need to be worried about shooting while moving. Uh, make sure you use cover effectively. And then if you got to move from one cover to another, you know, place of cover or something, you know, move as quickly as you can and get from point A to point B and then begin, you know, or resume shooting again. What do you think, Matthew? Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the and this is my personal opinion and professional opinion as well as the same thing, but I'm going to take the middle of the road and say there are definitely applications for both and times that for both. Um, I think if you, um, there are, there are advantages, right. And disadvantages of both. So I think that to understand the application that you're using it in, um, is important. So say, um, say you have, uh, a, a large area to cover to get to a, a you know another piece of cover. Um, you might want to sprint across that, but if somebody's shooting at you or multiple people are shooting at you, um, possibly um, putting rounds downrange towards those. It, it provided they're well aimed shots. Now, before we talk about shooting and moving, you, you can only shoot as fast as you can move. I'm sure. It'll, 
pretty much anybody who's been to a class will, you know, I've heard that um, saying is you can't shoot faster than you can move. So we're talking about moving at a pace where you can still consistently put well aimed shots. So I could either sprint across that open area and hope that, you know, those people that are shooting at me or maybe they're not actively shooting at me, but as soon as I get out in the open, they see me and they start shooting at me. Hopefully my movement um, causes them to miss or creates it a, a more difficult target for them. Or I might say, I have to move from this position. They're not shooting yet, but I have to move to the next position. Maybe it's to where medical aid is, or there's an injured person that I have to get to or something like that. Um, and maybe I say, I'm going to shoot as I move across this open area, keeping them from maybe feeling comfortable enough to get a well-aimed shot in on me. Um, so I, I mean, I think in certain situations you might want to just move. Um, but there's a, you know, I hear the argument is like time, like how quickly, and we were talking about this earlier and you see it a lot with like competition shooters, like how quickly can I get shots on target from this point and getting over to that point? You know, is it quicker for me to shoot than sprint really quick, get a good position and shoot, or should I continue to shoot. So I'm not a competition shooter. So, you know, what, what, what have you found like as far as competition shooters and what, you know, what you like to do as well? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting you bring into this and in, into this discussion, the competition aspect, because it's not often that we talk in the context of this podcast about training for competition necessarily. But what I think is an interesting perspective to bring to this conversation is is a more objective approach as far as what is actually faster as far as achieving a certain objective. You know, let's whether it's a competition environment or you've got a threat that you're trying to eliminate, uh, you still have a mission, a goal that you need to accomplish. And, you know, in a, obviously in a competition environment, you usually have multiple targets and you have a certain number of shots that you're that you either need to shoot or you're trying to shoot to supposedly neutralize targets or whatever. Um, in a real world environment, obviously it's a lot more dynamic and fluid than that. Uh, as far as it, it might take, you know, one hit on that target, it might take 12, but mm -hmm. what is actually faster as far as putting rounds down range, uh, where movement is also required. Let's suppose that in a competition shooting stage of some sort, whether it's USPSA or three gun or something, and you've got a position A and a position B, and from both positions you need to fire shots, a certain number of shots. Um, and in a real world tactical environment, you've got a position A, maybe a, a piece of cover, but you recognize I've got a better piece of cover over here at, at my point B, and so I'd really like to get over there because I'll be a little bit better protected and perhaps more efficient or able to eliminate my threat. And so I've done quite a bit of thinking and studying on this because you do see those different schools of thought about it's actually, you know, some, some will say it's actually faster to make sure you have a stable shooting position, uh, shoot your rounds, move from point A to point B as quickly as you possibly can, get it to your position B, and then you got a stable position and you're putting rounds on target again. Other guys will say, no, it's, it's faster to, to shoot while moving. Uh, and it's a highly debated subject, and and I think the same answer might apply in both tactical environments as well as competition environments. And I think the answer is it depends. <laughs> Although I will throw out there that I've shot a couple of stages, uh, practice stages, where I had the opportunity to shoot them over and over and over again, 
And with me personally, I found that I always complete those stages faster when I shoot certain, you know, if I have certain targets that can be addressed while on the move, I find I shoot those stages faster when I shoot while moving. But the challenge mm-hmm. with that obviously is that I'm less accurate. Right. And so it's something that has to be practiced considerably and you've got to develop a, a pretty high level of skill to hit man-sized targets in a even smaller, what we'd consider a hit zone that might be effective in doing that wall on the move. It is really challenging to do. But if you can do it, and assuming that you've achieved that level of skill, it probably works to your favor and benefit. Now, in a real-world tactical environment, I'm also going to say, I think it depends, Matthew, because I think, and I, I can't believe so many guys get so worked up. It's like, in their minds, they think, I either have to adopt the doctrine of only shoot from cover, then move quickly to other cover or other position and shoot from there. You know, like it's, it, I can only, I could never move and shoot at the same time. Right. You know what I mean? And other guys that say, I, I can only shoot. Well, if I've got a space, I got to cover, I got to move, I got to walk, I got to run. I can only do that if I'm shooting. Right. And it's like, you know what? How about we be not so pig headed about it? And <laughs> let's just assume that it might be situationally dependent. Depending on the situation and what's going on and who your threat is or how many threats there are, what's going on. I mean, like all these factors are going to play into it. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that we should learn to do both. And the, the good thing is it's not really hard to learn how to shoot from a stationary point, uh, where you've got good cover or something. Uh, and it's not very hard to run from point A to point B. We've been doing it since we were two years old. (laughs) So, um, that, you know, that part's really easy to learn. So learning to shoot while on the move, I do think is, is a good skill to learn because you might find yourself in a situation where you need to do that. Uh, that chance might be slim. It might be very unlikely to, to ever be needed or occur for you personally, listeners, or for me or for Matthew. But in the event that you find yourself in a situation where it's called for and warranted, you better know how to do it. Yeah, and and I I agree completely and with the whole doctrine of, you know, you have to pick you know, the weaver stance or the isosceles stance. It's always, you know, it's always one or the other. And, <laughs> and it's, it, a lot of this stuff is situationally dependent and, and, and varies. Um, there's obviously things tactically you should do and shouldn't do, but, you know, I, I agree. And I've always thought, and this comes from, you know, Marine Corps infantry training is that if you're going to be moving across an open area, that movement has to be covered with some sort of fire, right? I mean, you have supportive fire that, that suppresses the enemy's ability to see your movement or fire shots at you. So while you're there, your support fire is shooting, their heads are down and you're able to move. It's kind of the same thing. If I'm op- crossing an open area, if I can put well-aimed shots towards the threat, it give, it makes them less able to put shots toward on me, well-aimed shots, because they are now having to worry about being shot themselves instead of me just sprinting across an open area. It might be a difficult shot for them, but if I had the ability to put rounds onto the threat as I cross that area, my personal opinion is I would want to cover my movement with fire if I could, as long as it's well-aimed fire. Um 
And so, yeah, practicing. Um, I know a lot of people can't do it in, in indoor ranges, but, um, you know, it, it, it's really it, a lot of that comes into you can practice that with dry fire and it's all about foot movement if you can get that foot movement and that quieting of your upper body where you know you can kind of settle those sights as you're moving and you can you can practice that dry fire just your your movements um it, it will drastically make you a, a better shooter on the move and quicker um you know a, a, if you do have to fire on the move and, and i think it's definitely a skill that if you're if you're going to use your firearm in, in a defensive situation, you know, uh, it's definitely something that you want to, you want to, a skill you want to learn. So this is meant to be obviously be a, a training tip. And so I'm glad you mentioned that for many people, particularly if they shoot at a static indoor range, uh, this is probably very challenging for you to practice. But I do think that even at most indoor ranges, you probably can incorporate some movement into your training there. And even if that is a half step to the right or a half step to the left, uh, when you are, uh, you know, practicing taking those shots, and I would actually practice that where you you have your your uh, gun out, your sights on target, and you pick up your foot and you begin stepping to one side or the other. And while you're completing that movement, try to rattle off. You know, I don't mean like rattle off, but uh, just simply using as a figure of speech. But you know, take a couple of shots as you're completing that movement and get used to, like Matthew said, quieting your upper body, even though the lower body is doing something, it's moving around. Uh, the one another great way to practice uh, shooting while moving doesn't even involve shooting at all, and that is carrying a glass that is completely full of water to where if you barely tip it to one side or the other, you're you're, you're dripping water. <laughs> so it's a, it's full right to the brim, and try walking you know some you know distance 20, 30 feet while carrying this very full cup of liquid, because what you're going to have to do naturally. Uh, to support that cup without spilling anything is this very thing that we're talking about. You're going to have to, you know, roll those feet a little bit, bend the knees a little bit more, let the lower body act as a, as giant shock absorbers while the upper body tries to maintain a very smooth level, quiet platform. And that's the same that, that applies directly to shooting while on the move. Uh, another thing too is if you've got a cert pistol or if you've got an airsoft pistol or if you've or if you're just going to do it dry I mean it doesn't work as well probably if you got a live gun that you're trying to do dry fire but if you've got something where you can have a target on a wall and safely with a cert pistol to where you get you know shots on that target you can see that laser point hitting the target and so you're walking across your living room floor watching and making sure that you know those those shots are are going where you want them to go while you're practicing moving yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, and I think if the, for the people that think you should never shoot on the move, you know, um, you're missing out on a skill, you know, and for the people that sh think you should only shoot while you're moving and never shoot, you know, and, and shoot from cover and then move to cover, um, you're also missing out on, you know, on training. So I think understanding that it's a skill that you should have and it's, dependent on the situation, um, how many attackers, how close they are, their type of firearms they, they have, your type of cover, you know, um, all kinds of different scenarios. Um, you know, what if, what if you're behind cover and you end up running out of ammunition or you have two shots, maybe you don't want to, 
fire those two shots as you're sprinting across the the area to get to you know a safe area maybe you want to say i only have two shots i got to get to this next spot and still have some ammunition left i don't know but it's definitely something that you need a a skill that you need you should work on um, because it's it's not an easy thing to learn it's not an easy thing you know for somebody to to have uh, that skill set right off the bat, it, it does take time and, and training to, to really, um, uh, get it down where you are able to move and shoot accurately. Well, there you go. It's, uh, quite a bit of time we've spent on a training tip, uh, and talking about this idea of shooting on the move or v- versus shooting and then moving and then shooting, uh, some good things to consider and, and skills to practice and learn. Uh, but let's now get into our news stories for today, and uh, we've got we got some good ones here. Uh, the very first one is a man who shot at a car thief was recently sentenced for death of a neighbor that he hit instead. And I think we uh, it's possible we even shared this story. Uh, this was last November when this incident occurred. And, you know, the problem is we share so many similar news stories on this podcast. It's, it's challenging for me to, to actually remember, yeah, I think we did this one, but maybe we didn't. I don't know. But this is one of those stories where so often on the podcast we have a situation where uh, someone is attempting to break into or steal a car or they've tried to break into your home and you chase them out. Uh, we're going to get into another story, too, during our Justified segment uh, where some Good Samaritan neighbors um, uh, do something kind of similar, I think, uh, to a degree. But here we have a man. His name was Tobin, or is Tobin Hugh Panton. Uh, he was the owner of a forty caliber Glock. Uh he was at home on the night of November 3rd, 2016, and that night someone tried to break into and steal his Jeep. And he chased him off with his 40 caliber Glock, like I said, uh, firing shots at this fleeing car thief. One of those stray rounds, there, there were several stray rounds that hit neighbors' homes. Uh, one of those hit and killed his neighbor, 61-year-old Linda Green. That's a pretty tragic story, you know, and, and he, of course, was charged and found guilty uh, or maybe he took a plea bargain. I'm not exactly sure how the case arrived uh, to this place, but he uh, was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. Oh, here we go. It says that he previously pleaded guilty. So he did uh, plead guilty, first-degree manslaughter, and he is sentenced to six, or excuse me, eight years, six months in prison. And this is a good dude that just, you know, he felt like he was trying to do the right thing, uh, that he was being taken advantage of by having his vehicle stolen. Um, and, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing, but it, it's costing yeah. him now. Yeah. I mean, we have to, we have to live with the decisions we make and, and, you know, we want, I, I think it's critical and why, even though, you know, um, we might not always we might not always get the end result that we want um we have to do it with the our with common sense and knowledge of like 
the the laws of the state. So, you know, laws d- defending your property and things like that vary from state to state. So in generally speaking terms, it's probably not a good idea to shoot at somebody who's trying to steal your car or steal property solely that. Um, and I think that that factors in big time to the fact that, you know, what ended up happening through that um, was, you know, manslaughter versus, you know, he was defending himself under, you know, uh, the belief of serious bodily injury, death or serious bodily injury, and a stray round might have struck somebody. I think that that might have been seen differently. I don't know for sure. Um, But definitely when you start going into areas that are troublesome or difficult to defend legally, um, anything bad that results from that is going to be further tainted, you know, um, that's my, you know, my two yeah. cents on it. You know, I, I don't think the guy had any, uh, malice forethought in shooting the woman. Um, but you know, when he stepped out, out of bounds and, and, you know, I, I, I at least, um, and started shooting at somebody who was fleeing for stealing his vehicle. Um, I think that produced a chain of events that unfortunately ended up in this woman losing her life. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he, of course, uh, Mr. Panton, he was very sorry. He even told the court, I'm very, very sorry. I can't say that enough. Um, he feels really bad about, you know, killing this uh, this neighbor, uh, a grandmother of his, or not of him, but, you know, a neighbor of his, and she happened to be a grandmother. He said that he was trying to shoot at the tires of the fleeing car. Mm. Yeah, that's... That's not an acceptable way of bringing a car. I and mean, they might do that in <laughs> India or South Africa or someplace. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I've seen some videos from somewhere uh, overseas where that's a tactic of the police. Uh, but we don't even see no. police officers. Uh, it, it's happened, but it's strongly right. <laughs> discouraged and it's rarely done. Uh, and so. Yeah, you know, just a lot of unfortunate and poor decisions that were made in this situation. It's costing him a significant part of his his life, uh, eight years. I mean, I suspect I suspect that he will get the opportunity to get released um, uh, early, you know, on on probation or whatever after. Uh, probably about half, and typically it's about half that sentence will have to be served before he's eligible for parole. So there you go. Uh, let's let's keep things in context and let's realize that when someone's stealing our car, uh, it doesn't need to be responded to with deadly force in most situations. Uh, let's not shoot at fleeing suspects or fleeing vehicles. And we need to be, be or make sure that we are accountable, that we are taking account of every round that is fired, that we're mindful of where those may go, in, particularly if we mm-hmm. miss because in this case, it, it a bullet went into a bedroom of a nearby home and it killed this lady. Let's get on to our next story here, uh, which is, uh, well, of course, we, we're generally always in support of the NRA. And this story is about the NRA and what they are <clears throat> looking at considering doing uh, in support of, uh, and I have an advertisement that's popped up over the story. <laughs> so... When the advertisement, uh, because apparently there's not an X to get rid of it here, uh, the story is essentially that the NRA is condemning the governor 
and the general government of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And this is actually kind of an old story now because, I mean, we all know, and by the way, we, we talked about September 11th, but also our thoughts and prayers go to those in Florida and, and in the southeast that are affected by this Hurricane Irma, uh, and also those in the Caribbean that already uh, got slammed by it. Uh, a lot of homes lost, some lives have been lost, uh, People, many, many millions of people affected. Uh, this story is, is about Hurricane Irma. And uh, in advance of this hurricane hitting um, the U.S. Virgin Islands as well as the mainland, uh, there was talk that, well, the, the governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Kenneth Mapp, activated the National Guard. Now, that's we, I think we did the same thing in, in Florida as well, so it's not a big deal, right? Uh, and that was done to, uh, where's the quote here? Uh, he activated the National Guard to restore shoot. public order and to guarantee the safety of life and property. <laughs> okay. And that's pretty typical, right? Not that big of a deal. However, this order also authorizes and instructs the island's adjutant, adjutant general to seize arms ammunition, explosives, incendiary material, and any other property that may be required by the military forces for the performance of this emergency mission. And so the concern here was that the uh, National Guard in the U.S. Virgin Islands might basically confiscate firearms from law-abiding citizens. So something, something similar happened in Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. Absolutely. And so it's not far-fetched to think that governments might overstep their bounds, supposedly in support of the greater good of the public, uh, and confiscate arms. And there's some really great points made uh, here by by uh, Chris Cox, who is the executive director of the NRA's Institute for Legislative Action. Uh, he said that when 911 is non-existent, and we know it was for the city of Miami, whose police chief and mayor said, mm, yeah, police, they're, they're not working today, you know, when Hurricane Irma was hitting uh, the mainland. Uh, and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong, by the way. I mean, they, they have to be concerned, too, about the lives and safety of their officers. Um, and generally, when we're in the very middle, you know, of a major hurricane, there's not too many people out. Uh, but anyway, when 911 is non existent, quoting from Chris Cox again, and law enforcement personnel are overwhelmed with search and rescue missions and other emergency duties, law abiding American citizens must be able to protect their families and loved ones. The NRA is prepared to pursue legal action to halt Governor Mapp's dangerous and unconstitutional order. Well, this kind of struck home with me because I have uh, my wife, she's from St. Lucia and some of her family, well, her family still lives in St. Lucia and some of them also live in uh, St. Croix, which is part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, so this was kind of like something that was on my radar um, to begin with. And the, the, with me, I mean, you know, her family, they're not gun owners and the, the there's not a lot of pro-gun. It's not really anti-gun there. It's not really pro-gun there. It's just not really, it's It's not a real big issue there like it would be here. Um, so they weren't really, you know, when I spoke with my 
in-laws about it, they were like, oh, really? I didn't know anything about it. So it wasn't like they didn't really know anything about it, which wasn't surprising because it wasn't on, you know, really a lot of people's radar, I don't think, there. Um, they were more just concerned about losing their homes and stuff. But um, obviously, you know, I believe um, the Supreme Court or – uh, maybe one of the lower courts ruled that what they when they tried to do this um, during Katrina that it was unconstitutional, and so I think the fact that they did that here, um, knowing that it causes all kinds of problems, and and I understand, you know, I understand that you know you don't want vigilantism, um, but at the same time, it. it, it who is to say what is a vigilante what is vigilantism and what is somebody protecting their family you know and um i i think that it's it's you know i hate to use the word slippery slope but um these these laws are in effect for a reason and the government not being able to come and seize property from people um is there for a reason you know and you under the guise of a natural disaster, I understand the intent, but I think it leaves it open for abuse, and I think that that's the concern for most people. In these types of situations, the National Guard primarily is being used to help rescue people uh, and help protect uh, infrastructure, and you know it's it's primarily a uh, humanitarian mission. Uh, what purpose it might be, you know, it might serve for them to have to confiscate arms. I mean, I guess if people start getting crazy and started, you know, we started having like little almost, uh, uh, you know, tribish or tribal, uh, right. you know, fights <laughs> people are, or something, you know, like, yeah, refusing if, if all, to leave a neighborhood or something. They take up arms against the people and they're saying, Hey, well, you got to evacuate or you got to get out of this area because you're all going to perish, you know, and we're, we have to rescue these people. Well, we're not letting you in. And I can understand that. But in, in that situation, I mean, I don't think that you'd have to have a declaration in, in order to do that. If, you know, if they're threatening, if there's some sort of illegal use of the gun, it would I think that would be covered. You wouldn't have a have to have a special proclamation to allow that. I I don't, you know, I don't know all the laws governing uh, what the um, National Guard can and can't do as far as you know law enforcement wise because they're federal instead of state or you know municipality. But at the same time, you know, I think that there'd be that that there's ways that they could act responsibly without having to have a, a, a an article that says, hey, go out and if you need to seize explosives and this and ammunition and guns. I mean, it just, it doesn't seem, it, 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 I don't see why it would be needed. I really don't. Yeah. It's, it's unnecessary. It's extremely unlikely that the situation would uh, devolve into one where they needed to do that. There, there just is no purpose served. So you know, it's interesting too. I've been seeing on social media some images uh, going around, and, and primarily one that caught my eye was uh, a picture I think at a Walmart uh, where they had posted a sign over top of the uh, ammunition case saying that due mm -hmm. to the hurricane, we are not allowing the purchase of ammunition. And I was like, "What? You know, I, I don't know what's going on there with." Walmart or that particular Walmart store, um, that just seems really strange to me uh, that they would probably allow the purchase of just about anything else in that store, but ammunition they wouldn't. Um, 
just as yeah, that's that's a that's a strange one to me. And I don't know. I it, it looked like a legitimate picture. I don't know what the story is behind it, but uh, and I'm not saying that was anything government related or anything like that. Just simply saying like, why are people so concerned during these types of events about people having guns and ammunition? Uh, for some people, having I mean, well, number one, we're, besides the constitutional right aspect. But it is important, I think, for people to be able to defend themselves because we see looting and stuff that takes place. It happened in Katrina. There's probably some minimal looting that is or has occurred uh, due to due to Hurricane Irma uh, to to some limited extent. There was a, a thing I saw yesterday of people looting mm-hmm. a, a Foot Locker store, I think, in Miami. Uh, you know, and I know that's a store, and it's probably not. Uh, you know, that's probably not a situation where people need to be defending themselves, you know, standing out in front of the store with the store manager, you know, with an AR-15 or anything like that. That'd be kind of ridiculous in my opinion. But, but I mean, there are situations where uh, people, uh, regular citizens need to potentially defend their homes. Uh, we shared stories a week or two ago from uh, Hurricane Harvey in the Houston area of break-ins that occurred uh, around the time of the hurricane. I'm not sure if those were related to the hurricane necessarily in any way or if it's just coincidental, but still, people have the right to defend themselves and should have the tools to defend themselves, which, of course, is a great you know lesson, I guess, to make sure you have that mm. crap ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as the government taking it away from people, yeah. Not not a good idea. Not not going to happen. Uh, at least it shouldn't. And and the NRA, of course, is like I said, that's what this whole story was about: is uh, threatening to take legal action uh, over uh, orders issued like this. All right. So let's jump now to what is up with all these ads? <laughs> we got all kinds of ads popping up on our news stories today. Uh, here we go. Here's our next one on Breitbart. It says here, Representative and of course Speaker of the House Paul Ryan will not let Congress touch the concealed carry reciprocity bill that has been proposed. It was proposed earlier this year on January 3rd, and that is uh, uh, House Resolution 38. And then following the attack on uh, congressmen and, and, well, I guess women, I think it was mostly men there that were there, though. Uh, But uh, following that uh, shooting at the congressional baseball practice back in June, there was another bill that was proposed, H.R. 2909, that was essentially to uh, make it so that Washington, D.C. would recognize uh, permits from all 50 states, particularly for, for uh, representatives and, and senators and you know those that, are, that serve uh, in those types of capacities, government capacities in Washington, D.C. And ne- neither one of these has moved forward. Now, last week on Armed American Radio, uh, Representative Thomas Massey, who is the sponsor of that second resolution I mentioned, uh, he went on the record saying that the concealed carry reciprocity legislation is stalled in the House because Speaker Paul Ryan does not want Congress to touch it. That's kind of, I mean, that's disappointing to hear, obviously. Uh, we're, you know, we're, We've been on the record and we've talked about this, uh, this bill a number of times. Uh, it would be pretty cool to see something like this passed. Even if it were passed, I do think that there's some potential legal hurdles, uh, particularly involving states' rights and, and, and stuff. But it's a pretty cool piece of legislation that at least I, I think we ought to you know, give it the chance of putting it before a vote. And it sounds like that chance is not being given. 
Yeah. Um, it, it, with, with what's going on in Congress, um, right now, I mean, I, I, I don't know. They, they can't seem to get together on anything, whether they're against anything together or for anything together or anything. So I'm not surprised really that this is being held up. I mean, um, I, I'm, uh, frankly, I'm just, I would be surprised if they can get together to look at anything because after trying to watch them with the, uh, with the affordable care, Obamacare act thing and how it, it just, they just can't seem to get on the same page. So whether or not this is truly, uh, Paul Ryan saying, Hey, let's pause it right now so we can focus and get this done and then we'll get to this. Or if it's just kind of like, let's kick it out of the way because until the, the effect of the congressional shooting, baseball shooting goes away and, you know, we don't have to touch this because we don't want to politically. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of thinking it's a little bit more of the, the latter, but you know, and that's just my, you know, kind of negative opinion on, <laughs> on politicians in general, but it, it is sad that we can't get things, um, at least even talked about or brought up, um, because, because of things like this, it's, it's unfortunate. Especially with what I would consider common sense legislation. I mean, to me, it, it seems so ridiculous and asinine that we do have the freedoms that we enjoy, but that we can't trust law-abiding citizens that have been background checked and have had, you know, the FBI look, you know, five or seven years or 10 years back in their history and said, yeah, this person's probably not going to, you know, commit any major crimes. Uh, they, you know, they're okay to go ahead and get a concealed carry permit. And you, you can carry one state. You can't cross the state line and carry in a, in your, in a neighboring state in a lot of places. Um, it just, this is common sense legislation as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that it says here, Representative Massey said, the speaker told me he didn't think the timing mm-hmm. was right. And then he says, but this is the exact time to bring this bill, so it is frustrating for me. And I was thinking that too. We go back to that congressional congressional baseball practice shooting back in June. That is the perfect time to bring that to people's attention, to, to bring to light the stupidity that exists nationwide as far as how the gun laws work and the fact that certain people were defenseless that day because of where they mm-hmm. happened to be. Exactly. And certainly we, we've got con- congressional members that are entrusted with top secret, you know, with, with government secrets and we can't even trust them to carry a gun concealed in Washington, D.C. and defend themselves. Yet alone that, you know, I hate to, to, to put them on a pedestal and say they're way better than us and they should have these privileges. But, I, you know, that that that's just the asinine, asinine part of it, though, is like they have some of these guys have top secret clearances and yet they can't have a concealed yeah. carry permit. Uh, but I think all citizens, all law-abiding citizens that qualify should be able to, to carry Anywhere they go. But it obviously has a lot of hurdles, but it doesn't help that we have somebody who we have been on the record as praising in the past for doing pro-gun things, that being Speaker of the House Ryan. And here he's holding up legislation in the House relating to reciprocity, you know, concealed carry. 
Oh, well, let's move on. We'll keep following that story. Um, but I think it would it's worth saying or encouraging listeners of the podcast to contact your representatives and your senators. Contact the officer, the office of the Speaker of the House, Representative Paul Ryan, and express your opinion on this matter and let them know of your support of uh, these, uh, particularly this, this first bill, which is the National Reciprocity Bill. Now, uh, let's go now to Matthew, this story out of California, where it says bills to increase regulations on California gun stores heads to the governor. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> so there's been a rash of gun store break-ins, um, you know, and it's not just in California. It's not just in certain areas. It's happening all over the place, frankly. In Denver right here in the last year, there's been quite a rash of uh, very daring break-ins of gun stores and gun dealers. Uh, we've had Cabela's, we've had Bass Pro Shops, we've had, you know, those, so those are obviously big, some big names that everybody knows. And then we've had tons of little gun shops that have been broken into. And a lot of times, a lot of these are stolen vehicles that are being rammed through the front doors or through a back door, a garage door or something. And then they're, they're gaining access into the building. And a lot of these big stores where they have huge inventory, they don't, they don't, you know, they don't put their inventory away in safes every night. And they might have a cable they pull through the trigger guards that they secure. But a lot of times those can be defeated, you know, fairly easily with some bolt cutters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, handguns that are sitting in glass cases that may be locked but can obviously be broken into. Uh, so these things are happening. And California has, has uh, signed uh, a, a bill that is, like I said, now going to the governor's office that would up storage and security guidelines while – Ordering a change in mandatory warnings dealers must provide with firearm purchases. So there's really two things here, two different bills. Uh, our focus is more on on you know this requirement of gun dealers to do certain things. It says that uh, one of these bills will require gun stores to keep their firearms in a secure facility with steel bars on windows, dead bolted doors, or metal grates over entrances, an alarm system protecting ventilation. Additional security such as steel roll-down doors, locking polycarbonate gun cases, displays that utilize steel rods inserted through trigger guards or concrete bollards in front of the store, also on the list of requirements store owners must use to protect their guns when the store is closed. Wow, what do you think about all this, Matthew? Well, there's a couple things that I think are really important to to note and, and can be easily overlooked. And this is, this is what I'm thinking. Um, it, all these things are great. You know, it's great to be more secure in how they store their guns because these break-ins, I mean, they get two, 300 guns and they're out on the streets. But the amount that this is going to cost um, businesses to, you know, be in compliance with this is probably going to drive out some of the small businesses. I mean, or you know, make it, make it very prohibitive for new businesses to start because of all the, all the things that they have to have requirement from the law just to have guns in their, in their stores. Um, additionally, you know, things like bollards and bars over the windows and steel grates and stuff. I'm, I'm imagining, and especially in California, if you look at a lot of the zoning laws for business laws, um, or business zoning laws, um, they're, they're very strict in what you can and can't do as far as like what you can put in your windows, what can be out on the street, how far, you know, your sidewalk has to be. And this would be an easy way to say, you know what, we don't want a gun business going into this, this area because, they're going to have 
bars over the windows and bollards and and things like this and that's going to detract from the look that we want in this in this you know area so i think that it it it's it's a it's a problem it's a problem when you start putting these these laws that mandate certain things um for a specific business you know i i do i i just think that that's kind of um a little over the top, especially in, and I don't want to be long-winded on this because I know we got a, we got a lot of stories, but especially when they passed, California passed Proposition 47, which if you don't remember that, reduced a lot of the crimes um, from felonies to misdemeanors. And one of the, the crimes that was reduced was theft of a firearm. And it also increased the the cutoff from uh, $400 to $950 from a petty theft to a grand theft. So now basically is provided you're not committing a burglary. If you want to go in there and steal a gun, a firearm that's less than $950, it's a misdemeanor, right? So you're saying, yeah, we want to stop people from stealing guns. We want to stop people from, you know, from these guns being stolen and getting out on the streets. Great. But at the same time, you're going to put all these burdens on the the store and reduce the 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 penalty for people for stealing them. It, it doesn't. It it makes no sense to me. Um, so I think it's misguided. I'm sure it's going to be signed into law by the by the governor. I don't see why not. Um, and I just think it's misguided. and It's going to cost a lot of um, good gun owners, good gun businesses drive them out of business or reduce the ability for them, new gun businesses to be open. I, I really do. Yeah. Uh, excellent points, by the way, especially, you know, bringing to light uh, the reducing or reduction of penalties for the criminals to, that commit these types of crimes. Uh, it, it definitely seems like that may offset uh, some of the uh, benefits of a proposed legislation like this. Now, uh, I was thinking too. You know, I understand the the uh, the burden this will place on gun dealers and manufacturers potentially, and and uh, I I too am a little bit concerned about that because some of these guys are are probably are probably pretty small, and you know, contrary to what may some may think uh the margins on gun sales are are not super you know large or anything and uh it, you have to sell a few guns you know to to make a profit as a business a lot of times but here's my other concern is there's a lot of gun dealers and i don't know i, I suppose these might exist somewhat in california I, I have no idea what state law or local laws in california might might do in regards to this but i have a lot of friends here locally in colorado that are Small gun dealers. Uh, a lot of times they're a gunsmith that maybe they do some custom work, uh, but a few of them order in, you know, guns, special orders for people, and they, they do this out of their home, out of their mm -hmm. basement, out of their garage. Uh, that is not uncommon in this industry. There are thousands of gun dealers like that. And my, my other concern would be, what about a dealer that fits that kind of situation uh, where it's going to be very difficult for them to comply with these types of restrictions. So I don't know if that's something they've considered or not. And you, you know, chances are, as is usually typical with legislation like this, anything that is kind of viewed as gun control to some degree, usually the other side doesn't really care to, to look at all, uh, you know, at both sides of the coin and look at all uh, potential impacts. But 
just something I would kind of throw out there, and I, you know, I don't know if that's going to affect uh, particularly those types of small dealers. And I was actually thinking a lot of times those guys are probably more secure than these bigger stores because one of my friends in particular, I mean, every, every item of inventory he has is, uh, you know, it's locked up in a safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, be or I think he has probably multiple safes. And so uh, he obviously is concerned about security of his home because as that is where he is doing some of this business. And so he doesn't necessarily want people to know about that, but those that he trusts to come there and do business with him, uh, and, you know, and the guns that are kept there are, are, are stored very securely. It's not like you're just going to be able to break in and, 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 you know, these smash and grab jobs are, uh, primarily aimed at these larger retailers, or, or stores with storefronts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I would say too, that some of these guys might consider if they have it in their means to do so, they should look at securing their stores a little bit better Oh yeah, uh, because there is a lot of this going on and, and, you know, yeah, you might spend 10 or $15,000 in, uh, property upgrades. Uh, you could lose tens of you know, or hundreds of thousand dollars worth of inventory in some of these larger smash and grabs, which happened, by the way, recently in Colorado Springs, uh, famous Dragon Man's uh, range and uh, store was hit just a week or two ago, and they got out with a, a lot of of exp- you know higher higher end guns, uh, including one machine gun. Mm. And so, yeah, that's that's a problem. <laughs> anyway, let's move along now. So here's. Another story too that, uh, that I've just felt like we had to talk about this, Matthew. And this story is out of Plano, Texas, where you had uh, a woman by the name of Meredith Lane, 27 years old. Uh, she had a bunch of friends over watching the Cowboys football game. This is so. This is just last night, okay? And she just recently divorced her husband, and her ex-husband showed up and shot and killed seven of those in attendance at this football watching party. Two additional people were injured and and are in critical condition. And then he was shot by a responding officer uh, that uh, arrived on the scene and went into the home um, and then and then shot him. So a total of eight people dead. One of those is is a, is a suspe- suspect, but two additional critically wounded that you know they are not out of the woods yet. This is a sad, sad story. I mean, this is a party. People are having fun. They're watching football. I mean, many of us, uh, including I'm sure many listeners of this podcast, love football. I love football. Uh, it's one of my passions. And uh, this is not something that we probably think of happening. You know, uh, a little family and friend get together and suddenly it turns into a mass shooting. Yeah. Uh, and when you know we were talking about this story earlier when you told me you know it was going to be on the show um immediately i i you know something hit home to me and i don't know um you know this is probably something that might affect other listeners as well but um my personal i i have a, a sister that uh, i respect and i go to her her home but she is extremely terrified of guns and doesn't want and, and has told me in the past she doesn't want any guns in her home um and you know i have a i could carry concealed in her home and obviously she wouldn't know but um 
you know, if she were to ask me, um, I wouldn't lie. You know, I don't, I don't like lying and I wouldn't lie to her and say, no, I'm not caring. Um, so out of respect for her and her family and her home, um, and her husband's home, I don't carry when I go inside her home. And I was thinking, you know, if I go to her, her house, um, often for, you know, family dinners and things like that, and I'll watch a football game or, you know, a baseball game or something. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this is probably not an uncommon thing. And I don't know the, you know, what the people's ideas, the homeowners beliefs in far as guns or whatnot, but, um, you know, it, it gets me thinking as far as, you know, if you go, what, what are you going to do if you're in a situation like that? Like, let's say you're going over to your, you know, a Super Bowl party, you know, to a friend's house and they say, Hey, I don't want guns in my home or whatever. Um, are you going to carry in their home and say, you know, um, they won't know or, you know, and, it, and it's a personal opinion, it's personal choice, what you do, but it is something that we don't think about often. Um, or we might not until situations like this you know, happen. So, um, yeah, it was just something that I thought that, um, was unique to this type of story. Cause nobody goes to a, you know, your, your neighbor's party thinking, Hey, there's going to be a shooting there tonight. I better bring my gun. You know, um, what I carry when I go other places, just not when I go to my sister's house, um, I, uh, I lock it in my car. So, but you know, um, I know we talked about it a little bit and, uh, before the show, but, you know, it was just something interesting about this story. It, it is. I, I use it as a big reminder of the need to be prepared in, you know, at all times, in all places, as much as we are able to, to be. Because, like you said, we don't go to a football watch party or any type of party necessarily, uh, particularly a private, smaller gathering like this, thinking that we're going to have to, you know, a need to use our gun. Uh, and... And it's also an opportunity to really let down the guard. I mean, even if I had my gun on my on on me, uh, maybe I'm too comfortable and too involved in what's going on at the party to be, you know, really maintaining that uh, that that watchful eye and you know and vigilance and you know ready to respond. This is uh, this is what I would say for you concealed carriers out there. If you really are serious about concealed carry and about personal defense. Use this story as a reminder that it's not just about it, personal defense and concealed carry is not anything. It has nothing to do with convenience. In fact, it is the opposite of, of convenience. It creates inconvenience in your life. It's not just about weighing odds and thinking, well, because I'm going to Walgreens at 1130 at night to get some medicine or something. Uh, yeah, that's a situation where I, I think I probably better par- carry my gun. But going across the street to my neighbors on a Sunday evening to watch a football game, yeah, I don't need to carry a gun to that, you know, to that event. It's not about that at all. It's not about weighing where you're going. I mean, we can obviously take those things into account. I mean, obviously, I want to be a l- quite a bit more vigilant when I go to, um, you know, a Walgreens at 11:30 at night. But don't let the vigilance down. Don't don't let your guard down, even in a situation where you think there's no chance nothing's going to happen. I wish that somebody there uh, could have been armed. Maybe somebody was. Maybe they just 
they were the first person shot. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know. Uh, but uh, I, I wish there were others there that were prepared, that were capable, and were would have been able to stop this madman. I mean, this is such a tremendous loss of life. Uh, un, un, needlessly, I mean, this was a, an altercation between an ex-husband and, and his ex-wife. Right. Uh, that you know should have, frankly, I mean, I and I wouldn't want anything to happen to her either. But it should have started and ended there. Um, and unfortunately, because all these other people were there, uh, it escalated beyond something much, much, much more and greater than that. Um, concealed carry and personal defense is a lifestyle. And I would encourage you, because of stories like this and others that we have shared, to to make it and treat it as such. I carry everywhere I go, with few exceptions. I am vigilant everywhere I go. I occasionally chastise myself. The other day, I, I got a little bit too comfortable, uh, you know, as I stepped outside of my home. I got halfway to my truck and I realized, hmm, I haven't looked or, you know, this is actually at night. So it was, it was dark. Um, I, it's not like I live in a dangerous neighborhood, but I got halfway to my truck and I went, wait a minute, I totally could have stepped out that door and somebody could have been to the, to the right side of me and I wouldn't have had any idea, you know? And so to take those opportunities to go, Hmm, I need to not let my guard down. Uh, cha- you know, chastise yourself as need be, make corrections, make sure you're not creating opportunities for someone to take advantage of and hurt you. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, we do have one other story, and I'm putting you on the spot, uh, Matthew, on this one before we get to a couple of our justified stories. Last week on the podcast, Jacob and I shared a story about two Walmart customers reaching for the same notebook at the same time. This is a school supply, right? They're, they're doing their school back-to-school shopping. And that sparked a fight that turned nearly deadly. And I'm, I'm reading from the, the headline of this article that we shared last week when a mother pulled out her gun. So you had two women uh, there, okay? And you had two other women, but one of, but these other two women are a mom and daughter. Um, the mom's like 50 something years old. The daughter's like 20 something. Okay. And they're, they're all shopping. The daughter reaches for a notebook and one of these other two women reaches for a notebook and it's the last one on the shelf apparently. And so a fight ensues, and it sounds like this fight was a little bit more single-sided uh, as far as the two women were ganging up on the daughter and kind of, you know, they're pulling her hair, pushing her around, beating her up a little bit. The mom standing by, not sure what to do, except that she pulls out her gun to put a stop to this, mm-hmm. which does put a stop to it. However, you know, we talked about it last week, and shared our thoughts and opinions about how, you know, it's probably a little bit overbo- overboard. Uh, you know, I mean, this is uh, this is a little, you know, hair pulling and pushing around type fight. You know, nobody's pulled out knives yet. Nobody's, you know, well, I don't know. I, I, we really don't know uh, a lot of the details of this fight, but it didn't seem like it was worthy of introducing a gun, you know, as part of the equation. And part of my analysis was, hey, this lady, you know, she obviously freaked out. I mean, she, she turned into Mama Bear mm-hmm. and her daughter's getting the, you know, crap kicked out of her a little bit. And so she, and she may not have um, any sort of martial arts or hand-to-hand skills. Uh, she might not really have a whole lot of other skills or know how to uh, handle the situation, and except for she knows she's got a gun, she's got a permit, and so she she pulls out her gun, uh, which is probably the wrong move. And so we got a comment on that uh, story and on the, on the episode from last week, 
And it says, and this is from, actually, I don't know what his name is. So, oh, Larry, here it is. The first name only, Larry. And Larry says, I just listened to the podcast, Mom Pulls a Gun and Fight Over School Supplies. You started the story by mentioning that the headline from the liberal meeting was misleading. It was. And he says, and you were right. You then told the story about how a woman pulled her firearm because her daughter was being beaten by two other women over the school supplies. Yep. Okay, so we're, we're all clear up to there. After the story, you cited with, it was the wrong decision. My opinion on that has not changed. Okay. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your opinion too. That's, I'm, I'm setting this all up for you, Matthew, obviously, <laughs> to get your, your take. But let me finish getting through Larry's uh, feedback. You stated that maybe the mother should have more training. Yeah, that's true. She should have more training. Or learn to fight because her daughter was not in a life-threatening situation. I also still stand by what I said, that she probably should get more training. And I think this of everybody, by the way. Uh, And then he goes on and says, my mother has a concealed carry permit, but she is 82 years old. There's a big difference between 82 and I think the mom in this story was like 51. Uh, I got it here. You know, there's a big difference regardless. There's a big difference between 82 and 50-something. Would you agree, Matthew? I, I mean, all things considered, yeah, unless the 52-year-old is, you know, hooked up to an oxygen machine right. or, you know, quadriplegic or something. But, yeah, all things considered, even, you know, yes. The story says nothing. I mean, it, to as far as we know, and there's some video, and you can see the video. As far as we know, 51-year-old mother is physically, you know, she's normally healthy as far as 51-year-olds go. And so there's a big difference between that and an 82-year-old, okay? Uh, And so anyway, he says about his grandma, or or his mother, excuse me, that uh, this is Larry. She is not going to take a class in MMA to learn how to put somebody in an armbar. She probably won't. I'll grant you that. So in this case, should she just stand there and wait for her daughter to get boot stomped in the head by these two other women before she should do something? I'll come back to that. In the stories like... These, you really need to play a devil's advocate, which I believe we did to some extent, maybe not as far as Larry would like us to have taken it. Because I think we did talk about how, hey, you know, I mean, what if, well, we don't know a lot of details here, but what if they're stomping on this 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 girl's head or slamming it into the concrete floor or into the edge of the shelf? And he used that example here, getting boot stomped. We actually don't know that from the story, by the way. Larry, we don't know for a fact she was getting boot stomped from the story we shared. Now, maybe there's some other details out that gives us more information. At the time we talked about it, though, and I don't know that there is more details, by the way. I haven't really looked into it to follow up on the story. I don't didn't really care that much to, to follow up on it. But maybe I'll go look just for you, Larry. Um, but we don't know that that's what was happening. Okay, as far as we know, there's pushing and shoving and hair getting pulled. All right, that's different. But anyway, he says we should play devil's advocate, which we did to some degree. And because with your credentials, you would be considered a professional. And the statement you made about this woman by saying she was wrong could be used against her when maybe after all the facts, she was justified. She may have been justified if there are more facts that come out. Now, if you'll remember, when Michael Brown was shot in Missouri uh, by uh, you know the officer uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, you know, everyone said, everyone, the media everywhere, social media everywhere. Everyone said, hands up, don't shoot. Michael Brown had his hands up. He wasn't doing anything to this officer, and the officer shot him dead. When all the facts came out, we find out Michael Brown, you know, he assaulted the officer, was fighting for his gun. And 
that it was a just it was a it was a good shoot. Okay, in other words, it was justified. Uh, I would change my opinion on this situation if more facts came out. As of right now, from what we know, it doesn't look like this was the right call to pull her gun. And I know she's you, you, hey if it, if the story was all facts the same except that the mom that pulls the gun is your 82 year old mom Larry, then it might be treated a little bit. I mean, it would be treated a little bit differently. I still don't know. I go so far as to like pull out my gun. I think I'd call for help. Uh, you know, I know it's not cool watching your daughter get you know in this little fight, but guess what? <laughs> there are some very specific things that must be present. When we draw a gun and I'm not saying it might not be the right call. I'm just saying we really have to take it seriously and we can't just treat these things, you know, lightly and say, anytime something's happening where a loved one is in a fight and just because I I'm old and I'm decrepit and I don't have skills, I automatically get, you know, the, the free get out of jail card to pull out my gun and, and, and do whatever I have to do with that gun. Yeah, I, mean, I think we got to approach it with a little bit more seriousness than that. Uh, Matthew, what's your thoughts and what's your take on this? Well, and I appreciate, I, I do appreciate his, his Larry's, uh, take and saying, Hey, you got to play devil's advocate. And I, and, and you know, I know because I listened to your, the, the, this specific episode that you did play devil's advocate and we do all the time on these situations and, you know, these types of incidents, but I think what's being overlooked or, or is that, okay, we all can agree that if you are in fear of death or serious bodily injury, you should use what appropriate force that you have. If that's a firearm and you're legitimately reasonable, you know, belief that you are going to be killed or seriously suffer serious bodily injury, then it's appropriate. If you can articulate that and if it's reasonable similarly if she can articulate that her daughter was in that what these two people were doing over this notebook was going to cause her death or serious bodily injury then you know pulling her firearm would be appropriate i mean if like larry said she was being boot stomped and you know brain matter was flying all over or you know she was losing consciousness or something i absolutely i think that that's appropriate okay but like you said, in, in, in this situation, we have uh, the incident, what was said, or the, the facts that we know was that she pulled a firearm because her daughter was in a fight with two people. Um, and, and that simply doesn't justify just being in a fight doesn't justify deadly force. It just doesn't, um, unless you can articulate stuff beyond that facts above and beyond that, that would, you know, lead you to, uh, think that your life was in danger. And not only that, but you have to think about you pulling a firearm in a situation where two people are fighting and not actually intending to use it because had she pulled the, let's say she does think that this is the, the force that these two people are using are likely to cause death or serious bodily injury. She pulls her firearm Unless that situation stopped immediately, when is she going to actually intervene with deadly force? Was she planning on doing this and shooting these two people as they in Walmart as they fought her daughter? Because if not, now you have a firearm that's out that you're not willing to use that like Larry might have said, she's not going to be trained in MMA and putting people in arm bars and things like that. She might have minimal training. So her probably her weapon retention skills aren't very high. So now you've produced a firearm 
into a situation that may not totally justify it at that point, or you're not willing to use it at that point. Um, so the, the likelihood of somebody else taking that firearm away from you or now perceiving you as a deadly threat and being willing to use that because now they see a firearm pointed at themselves at them or their family and now they're willing to use deadly force and you end up getting shot because you you pulled a, a firearm in an inappropriate situation or a, a situation isn't quite reached that level so my my whole thing is if you are justified in using deadly force, you pull your firearm and the situation de-escalates, great. If it's not quite reached that level and you're pulling it in kind of anticipation of it getting to that point or, hey, I don't want it to get this bad, so I'm going to pull my firearm to kind of, you know, hopefully it, it calms the situation down, that's the wrong idea to have and, and it creates a lot of bad problems. Um, so yeah, Larry, if your 82 year old mother, uh, sees her, you know, her daughter or you being boot stomped and you're losing consciousness and she decides, Hey, I can't fight these people off. I'm going to pull a firearm and use it to save my son's life. Great. But if they're fighting in a Walmart and just simply pulling hair and punching and things like that, getting a bloody nose, or even you know those those situations on themselves don't don't aren't it, it, it's not reasonable. You're probably not going to find a jury that's going to find that that's reasonable. Using deadly force is reasonable to stop uh, you know a fist fight. It's probably not going to you know look good. So um, yep. that's that's just my two cents on it. Appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, Larry, by the way, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to us and leaving your feedback. Uh, I like, I really do appreciate getting feedback, even like this, where uh, it's good to know and understand the minds of listeners of the podcast. And I'm not trying to like criticize you in any way. I just want that to be clear. Uh, just, you know, I, I'm just making it clear that as far as the facts that we do know, and I, I by the by the way, I looked up the video. the The quality is terrible in this video. You can't even really see what's going on all that well. But from what I can see, it doesn't look like it. It looks like a typical Walmart uh, cat fight. And I hate to say it in that you know, put it in that way. As some of you might be take offense at uh, me even using the the phrase cat fight. Uh, typically implies you know two women fighting. Um, but uh, it, it, that's what it looks like. We, we've seen these videos before, you know, where you got a couple of people, a couple of women in Walmart fighting over something, fighting over a man, fighting over a toy, whatever it is. And they're pulling hair and shoving each other around and, and, and scrappling on the ground a little bit. And that's basically what this looks like. All right. So I, I, I still think it was the wrong call for her to pull out her gun uh, because it was a typical Walmart cat fight. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, Appreciate you for listening, by the way, Larry. Uh, and if you have any further questions or if anyone has any questions about anything that we talk about on this podcast, by all means, reach out to us. We'd love to address uh, those questions or issues or comments or feedback or criticism, whatever it is. Uh, I think we state ourselves, our case, we make, make our cases fairly clear and try to back it up as much as possible with, with evidence. And in this case, the evidence just does not exist uh, that would suggest that drawing the gun is the right call. Let's get to our first justified story now. Uh, this first one, is uh, out of Spokane, Washington. Uh, I'm going to give you the the fast uh, summary of this. Uh, we're, we're 
a little bit over time on the podcast, and so we'll get through this as quick as we can, uh, but still try to do it some justice, folks. Uh, first off, in Spokane, uh, neighbors hold gun, a burglar at gunpoint until the police show up. Basically, the situation is you had two neighbors on either side of a third neighbor. Okay, so you have a house in the middle and a neighbor on one side, neighbor on the other side. The one neighbor on one side notices that some people go to the back of this house. They hop the fence. It appears to be a break-in. He happens to know that the owner of that home is away. And so he thinks, okay, she's gone. They had no way of getting a hold of her because she was uh, in a location where cell service is not reliable. Uh, he takes it upon himself to contact the neighbor on the other side, and together they go over there. And essentially what happens is they catch up with this burglar. Uh, it's a burglary in process. And they corner him. Uh, they hold him at gunpoint. One of the neighbors has a gun, brings it with him. And another, and another one of the neighbors sits on the back of the uh, the, the the intruder and uh, they hold him there until police arrive and the police make arrest. And to my knowledge, you know, there's no charges filed except for against 21-year-old Keenan Timmer, who is the burglar. And so we, it's an unjustified segment because, hey, anytime people, you know, use uh, a gun or self-defense and, you know, they stop something bad from happening, uh, I, I'm a fan of. But I'm still going to use these situations as a teaching moment. And I'm sure, Matthew, you have some of your own thoughts as well. But in this case, we we have guys going over and confronting a burglar. And yes, 911 was eventually called, but I don't think it was the first call in this case, by the way. No. And that's a little bit concerning. And there was no need. There was no. They knew this house was empty; that the owner was gone. So there's no chance that there's life, you know, in jeopardy. And yet they go over to confront this and encourage, or, or at least present the opportunity that life could come into the equation. Meaning, a fight breaks out, uh, or this burglar has a weapon on him, and uh, a gun is is presented by one of the neighbors, is used to gain compliance, and then. Another concern of mine is this guy sitting on his back, uh, which could, I mean, that's, that's, you, you know, Matthew, I know having received some arrest control training, uh, that that's, that's not an acceptable practice because that can (laughs) cause someone to hyperventilate and to not be able to breathe and they could die. And so now Mm -hmm. you're submitting somebody to custody, essentially, uh, and you're affecting an arrest and they die in your, uh, uh, you know, under your care. Um, I know you're a neighbor just trying to do the right thing, but you, you, you got to think these things through. And especially where there's not life in jeopardy. I know you don't want your neighbor's stuff to get broken into and taken, but call 911 and, you know, be a good witness and keep an eye out and watch where this guy goes or whatever it is you got to do that I think is our response, are more responsible things for citizens to do and be concerned about and not play cop. But what do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think, you know, and we can learn some stuff. Um, obviously, this ended in a good, situ- you know, a good way. But if this were to happen, I, I and I put myself in the same situation and think, okay, what, what would I do? Um, the first call is going to, is should be, 
to the police. And in looking at the the area, it doesn't look like they're in a rural area where, you know, they're going to call a sheriff's deputy and they're going to say, hey, we'll be there in an hour and a half. That might be a little different where you say, okay, well, I'm going to go and right. secure this. That might be different. But this looks like a, a, you know, a residential or a metropolitan type area where it's probably going to be two minutes, three minutes, maybe four minutes at the most um, type response from officers. So, you know, you call, you make the call, um, say, hey, I don't know what's going on, but my neighbor's gone. I see somebody sneaking in the backyard and through a window um, and, and let the and keep a good eye. Say, you know, I'm watching the window. They haven't come out or this is what they were wearing. Um, maybe you call the neighbor and you say, hey, can you watch, look out your front door, your window and look at the front house and I'll look at the back and see if they run out or if there's a car that's parked out. I mean, get get information to give to the police and let them do it. Um, it, it you know, if they were, like I said, if they're in a rural area and they're saying, hey, we'll be there in two hours or we're over, you know, we're dealing with a hurricane and we're not responding to any calls like this. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to go protect my my neighbor's house or whatever. But like you said, you're by doing that, you're you're and going over there and you're taking on a lot of a lot of liability when it comes to affecting an arrest or trying to detain somebody over you know, which it could be a felony. Uh, burglary is obviously going to be a, a felony. Um, and and so it is a felony. So, you know, you might be justified in affecting a citizen's arrest in, in certain states. You know, it has to be a felony, some not. But um, but yeah, I mean, you're just taking on a lot of liability as far as what happens if you end up having to shoot this person or they die or um, they get injured or something and now they sue. It's just, it's probably not something that you routinely would want to subject yourself to. And and frankly, it's just over stuff. I mean, even if this guy gets away with $10,000 worth of property from this burglary, you know what? If you ended up shooting him or causing him to suffocate because you sat on his back while you were arresting him, uh, guess what? You just cost a man's life over $10,000 worth of stuff that's likely insured anyway. And, and so, you know, I, I think fondly on, on people like this that want to do the right thing. And, and, and in the end, all is well. Uh, the suspect's arrested. He faces charges. The prosecutor didn't, you know, hasn't pursued charges against the neighbors for doing anything wrong. Uh, so all is well. I'm I'm glad it worked out that way, but I I have to as a professional, like Larry said in his comment to us, I have to tell you that this is probably not the best course of action to take. I, I'm obligated to tell you that, and so that's why you're here, and you've heard it from me before on similar situations. Now, last story before we wrap it up, and that is this one's out of uh, the. Uh, Gresham, uh, this is in Illinois, uh, where a 23-year-old man was wounded Saturday morning when the person he was allegedly trying to rob stole his gun from him and shot him in the Southside Gresham neighborhood. Uh, Dennis Evans, 23, faces felony counts of attempted murder and armed robbery, according to Chicago police. The turn of events happened at about 6.15 a.m. when Evans walked up to a female and demanded her things in uh, police said. She, she wrestled the gun away from him and shot him in the hand. He ran away but was soon caught by officers who recognized him from a message broadcast from the police radio and saw he was bleeding from the hand. He was treated at a hospital. He was in good condition, was released and charged. The robbery victim was not injured. I love this story, Matthew, because you have a big guy. I mean, you see a picture of him. He's, he looks like he's a pretty solid dude. I mean, yeah. as far as build, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And he he tries to rob a female with a gun in hand, and she takes it from him and shoots him. 
Yeah, I, I want to meet her. Like, I really, I really want to, like, you know, meet her, go out shooting with her, go out like, hey, you know, teach me some. St-. I mean, that's 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 a great mindset. That's a, you know, I mean, you do what you have to do to survive, and that's awesome. That's not, you know, uh, giving up. And and you know, look at how it ended. You know, that yep. it's that's. I'm trying to keep my words like professional, not cuss, but that's pretty pretty. <laughs> Pretty cool kick butt story right there. <laughs> Indeed it is. Uh, I appreciate this one because, I mean, even if she was not personally armed, she did not take the victim mentality. She took charge and she solved the problem. Uh, but the other thing is too, like, let's consider if, let's consider if she was armed, if maybe she was carrying her own gun, for instance. Uh, I think she still made the right, the right call here because it's not always a good idea to try to draw a gun on a drawn gun. And I'll tell you, I don't know if she had some special hand-to-hand, you know, fighting, you know, martial arts training or anything like that. Uh, it's possible she did, and that's why she did what she did. But I'll tell you, if if you've got any sort of training at all, uh, especially with, uh, you know, disarming somebody that's got a weapon on you, uh, it is always faster to attempt that disarm than to try to draw your gun and use your gun on them. Like they're going to shoot you before you can even get your hand to sweep your, your garment back potentially. Now there are times where people succeed. There's times people are able to create a distraction or they're able to look for an opportunity where they're able to do that. That's different. But if you're face to face with somebody gun in your face and all of a sudden you're going to try to reach for or grab a weapon and use it on that dude, wrong, wrong play. That's a great way to, to end up getting shot. Uh, I've seen demonstrated and I've demonstrated it to others where you're in that close, you know, arm's length distance gun is on you. You know, they're robbing you. I can step in and take control of that gun and, and, and the arm and the hand that's holding that gun faster than I can try to do anything else. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's always the right move either. It's going to be situationally dependent. It's going to be, you know, how confident am I based on how this person's holding themselves, uh, you know, whether the finger's on the trigger or not, whether, you know, there's going to be all sorts of things I'm going to look at. I'm going to analyze. I'm going to go, okay, here's my play. Here's my move. Um, in a lot of situations, it's going to be like, dude, what do you want? Money, whatever. Give me your wallet. Okay, here, man. Here's here's my wallet. Take my wallet, you know. <laughs> if you're, if, but if you're going to try to do something more to me, then we're going to go to, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to up, up the stakes here a little bit. But, you know... I think you get what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, I absolutely. And, and it's just this story was really cool. I mean, and it reminded me, you know, I wrote that article about is violence justified? I mean, taking the violence to the attacker sometimes takes them off of their game. Like they yeah. most most people that com- are committing these like, you know, strong arm robberies or armed robberies in this case, um they don't want resistance and when they do get resist they're not expecting it and when they do get it, when they do feel that person resisting or bringing the fight to them, it's almost debilitating for them because they don't, they prey on the weak. And when they don't get somebody who's weak and they get somebody who fights back, um, that's why we get these stories of like, wow, that's, and that's awesome. I mean, these people fight back and, and they, they, uh, flip the, flip the table, you know, uh, on these attackers. So that's, that's the mentality yep. you have to have. 
Well, it's a bunch of great stories there, and, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Matthew. But before we let you go, today's episode is brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. ConcealedCarry.com and the Concealed Carry Podcast has joined forces with Andrew to bring you the best legal education related to the law of self-defense. We've already highlighted in several of these stories mistakes that were made regarding self-defense law. If you ever have to draw or use your gun in self-defense, make sure you know how to minimize your vulnerability to prosecution and conviction by helping your defense team if necessary, or maybe avoid these things in the first place. But if it comes to it, help your defense team build the most compelling narrative of innocence. Andrew has the the resources you need through live in-person courses, online training, his best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, and now he has newly released video training DVDs. Check it all out at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D which stands for Law of Self-Defense. And today's other uh, final uh, sponsor of the episode is Sports Afield. After listening to these justified stories today on the podcast, have you ever considered how you would access your gun quickly in a home invasion while still keeping your firearm stored securely? You know, once every 30 seconds in America, a home break-in occurs. Don't leave yourself unprepared and unable to access your defensive handgun in an instant while still storing them safely and responsibly from unauthorized hands. The Sports Afield line of quick-access handgun safes are perfect for the task. Also take a look at their line of full, full-size full rifle safes, which are also now available that makes shipping and delivery easy. Trust this 100-year-old brand, yes, the same company that has published the Sports of Field magazine since 1887, with your firearm storage and security needs, and get a free one-year subscription to the magazine with purchase. See the full safe lineup at concealedcarry.com forward slash sports afield. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Uh, I w- also want to remind you that last week, if you listened to episode 154, you heard my interview with Andy Brown, the guy that stopped the act, the active shooter at uh, Fairchild Air Force Base in 1994. A fascinating, compelling story with lots of lessons learned and things you're not going to want to miss. If you missed episode 154, go back, listen to it when you're done listening to this episode, which is soon, within the next minute or so. <laughs> And tomorrow, or excuse me, Wednesday's episode of this week is going to be the part two of my interview with Andy Brown. Those of you that listened last week probably noticed I cut it off at like the most exciting, most in- intense part of the interview. And you'll be able to hear that conclusion soon on Wednesday's episode, episode 156. Don't miss it. So with that, we're going to let you all go. Take care, everybody. Uh, this is Riley with the Concealed Carry Podcast and Matthew Marister. A reminder to train right train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. We'll see you all later. We'll see you later, Matthew. Thank you, and God bless. Yep, indeed. Take care, everyone. We'll catch you next time. laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.